I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Christian Schuf. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a glaciologist. Um, how would you define a glaciologist? There's um, a very broad and a much narrower definition. I think broadly it's somebody who studies um, frozen water, either on Earth, maybe another planetary system, but really on Earth. Um, but that can mean any number of things. Um, that could be permafrost, frozen ground that you find in the high, high mountains, uh, or at high latitudes. It could mean sea ice, it could mean snow cover, that's often seasonal, uh, or it could mean what we usually call land ice. So um, that's looking at glaciers, permanent ice cover and mountains, uh, or ice caps and ice sheets, which are much the same thing, but um, covering whole islands or large parts of continents, as in Greenland, Antarctica, and parts of the Canadian Arctic and elsewhere. Um, I fall into that latter category. I study land ice. When I say land ice, really, I mean um, ice that starts on land. Um, my interests include when that ice starts to float, so the floating extensions of glaciers and ice sheets uh, would be included in what I do. Um, I don't particularly study seawater that freezes and forms sea ice. Okay. A bit of rivalry going on there between the land glaciologists and the sea glaciologists. I wouldn't say it's a rivalry. It's um, a there are big enough differences in, in what you study that um, skill sets don't carry over that easily. But the International Glaciological Society, for what it's worth, would cover all of these aspects of uh, frozen water on Earth. Wonderful. Um, did you study glaciology in school or did you uh, uh, study something else? Very few people study glaciology per se in school. Um, I don't think there is a single undergraduate degree that would focus on that. Uh, I sort of studied glaciology at school uh, for my PhD. Uh, my background is in originally in physics. Um, and for grad school, I switched to applied mathematics, um, but the application firmly was in glaciology. How do physics and mathematics apply to glaciology, to frozen water? Um, well, you could argue they can be used to study most things in the physical world. Uh, but specifically, if you look at a glacier and ice sheet, you're looking at a system that um, flows as what in science we would call a continuum. Um, the fact that flows much like honey does um, in many ways, uh, quite slowly, but deforms irreversibly, even though it's a solid. And so the, the study of continuum mechanics is deeply entwined with both physics and mathematics. And that's really, that was my angle into glaciology. Uh, now you mentioned um, glaciers flow like honey, and I've heard this term before. Um, how fast are we talking a glacier would flow, or does it change? It does change, and I will say it flows much more slowly than 
than honey. Um, but if you wanted to have sort of a, a very simple visualization, that, that wouldn't be a bad analogy. Um, if you look at typical glaciers in the mountains, um, the smaller ones might be moving at 10, 20, 30 meters a year, um, larger ones at 80 to 100 meters a year. If you go to certain more exotic locales in places like Greenland or Antarctica, you might find velocities that are up to a kilometer or a few kilometers a year. Still very much glacial, um, you can easily outwalk that clearly. Um, but it, it becomes perceptible, for instance, if you um, point a camera at the glacier uh, and take pictures in sequence over a space of days to weeks, um, you can actually perceive this motion. And there are whole movies made that are based on this premise. So the movie Chasing Ice uh, used this to great effect. So when the, uh, the glaciers were building at the end of, or at the last ice age, they could have been advancing at a kilometer per year. So a, the best way to think of glaciers certainly now would not be to think of them as, as a, a remnant of an ice age. Um, the ice that you find in, in the mountain glaciers around Vancouver uh, would be a few decades to maybe a century or so old. Um, the uh, the glacier is really, really a conveyor belt. It takes snow uh, from places where more snow falls over a year uh, than melts to places where more snow can melt than accumulates over a year. So the only reason why we have glaciers near Vancouver is that it snows a lot in winter and summer melt doesn't get rid of all the fall of the snow in the high elevations. And the glacier simply carries all that material downslope where it's warmer and you have more melting. Um, uh, so that's just to say that you shouldn't think of the ice as sitting there statically the way that a, a rock does and, and moving very little. The motion of the glacier ice sheet is, is integral to how it works, why it's there. Uh, but yes, um, you could have had localized advances of ice uh, on that scale of kilometers per year. So the average uh, rate at which ice would have been flowing would have been more than the 100 meter per year. That's still pretty fast. Um, so it's probably faster than most people might imagine, but it's it's certainly not um, what you would get in most geological settings. Now, uh, again, you started off in physics and math. What got you to focus on glaciers? Or you were studying physics and math in the glacier um, context, but why ice? Well, well so, to be honest, as an undergraduate, I, like many physics undergraduate students, had somewhat grandiose ideas about myself. I was going to discover something fundamental about the universe, and I was taking courses in subjects like cosmology and quantum field theory and, and, and all manner of good things, um, but I clearly wasn't cut out to be the next Einstein. Um, and I actually enjoyed the idea of there being something slightly more tangible about um, the natural environment closer to home, as opposed to the cosmos as a whole. Uh, what got me into glaciology ultimately is um, uh, is a friend um, that I met while rock climbing. And I should add that a route into glaciology through an interest in outdoor activities is by no means a must. It is something that you find many glaciologists uh, 
coming along this route, but uh, it's certainly not a must. But it, it was the case for me that I um, I got interested in rock climbing and I met um, someone else who uh, had done a or was doing a PhD in theoretical glaciology with a mathematician at my local university. Uh, and he, after a while, I decided that this was uh, too fascinating to pass up. Now, what are you researching right now? Well, it's been 23 years since I started as a glaciologist, and uh, and I found that over time, uh, my work branches out more and more. Uh, I have several areas that I, I would say are my focus at the moment. Uh, one is uh, the drainage of meltwater under glaciers. Uh, this probably sounds quite obscure, and it is because it happens under hundreds of meters of dark ice. Uh, but that pun aside, uh, the way that water flows under under ice uh, has a big effect on how fast the ice can move. Uh, you want to think of water under the ice as, as partially supporting the weight of the ice. And what that does is it reduces the amount of friction um, that the ice experiences at the contact with whatever is underneath it. Um, and so if you have high water pressure under a glacier, it will move faster. Uh, the same is true uh, in a localized way in ice sheets where you find ice streams. These are the, the parts of the ice sheet that actually move at kilometers a year. And they typically sit uh, on a portion of ice sheet bed, as we call it, the material underneath, that is both at the melting point and highly pressurized with meltwater. Uh, so the question is, can you predict how that pressurization works? Uh, and that involves trying to understand how melt that is produced then drains out. How much pressure does that require? Uh, and I've studied this both um, in my capacity as a, an applied mathematician trying to formulate and solve mathematical models that do this, but also in the field where we um, try to make observations that can constrain these models that we can construct, meaning that we want to test whether these models actually predict what you observe in nature. And uh, they don't always, for sure. Now, that might seem like a, a challenge, but it's a challenge in a good way. It keeps us busy. Uh, if it was easy to figure out how the world works, there'd be less for scientists to do. The water essentially lubricates the underside of the, the glacier. That's right. I was giving you a somewhat circuitous and... Uh, uh, overly pedantic explanation. No, no. I just want to make sure I understood it right. That's quite right. It effectively lubricates the uh, the ice. And um, I can see why you'd want to test out your theories, because the, the last thing you want is to develop some elaborate model, publish it, and then find out that it doesn't work in the real world. So I'm glad you do both. Oh, well, uh, we, we publish these models for sure. Um, they... Uh, whether they work or not, I, you don't necessarily have the luxury of spending uh, years and years both formulating a model and testing it at the same time. So you, uh, in this particular instance, what we did is we constructed a model that uh, reproduces certain known types of behavior of uh, drainage systems on the glaciers. Um, that was mostly guided by what you might call a qualitative understanding. Um, if you look in detail at 
um, how drainage on the glaciers actually works, you find that it's somewhat more complicated with aspects of a to date defying um, an easy explanation. But that's, as I said, uh, the interesting part. And how often do you find you have to go back and redo your models? Uh, well, it's kind of a continuous process. I, I, I can give you an idea of the time scale here. I first got interested in uh, subglacial drainage about 12, 13 years ago. Um, I was starting to make field observations. And my original aim was to understand how friction at the glacier bed by itself works, treating water as sort of a given that you would observe. Um, effectively, you would measure water pressure, but you try to infer what is the relationship between friction, the velocity of the glacier, and the water pressure at the bed. Uh, very quickly, I realized that the really interesting questions are in what controls the distribution changes in time. Uh, of the water pressure that we were measuring. Uh, and, and things kind of built from there. Uh, so that's over a decade, and we're still very much working on this. That's not an untypical kind of progression, though. Science is actually relatively slow moving relative to what you know, a cursory look at the news media would suggest. Nothing wrong with being wrong, uh, as long as you learn from it. Well, in fact, I'd, I'd, I'd say that uh, you know, science uh, science really progresses by discarding theories that don't work um, or amending them at least. It's very difficult to actually fully confirm a theory. The only thing you can do is uh, find an absence of contradiction. And if that persists for long enough, then you'd actually accept this theory. I mean, that, um, that, that's a profound insight, but it certainly isn't my own. I'm simply parroting any that, that that's how science works. And so you have to be willing to hypothesize something that's wrong and then proceed to disprove it. Hopefully you're not hypothesizing something that's completely implausible and therefore a waste of time. That's, that's as good, good as it gets. True, true. They say the first time Einstein tried his equation, he came up with E equals MC hammer. So, <laughs> and we know how that turned out. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong century, but yes. yes. <laughs> Now, one of my favorite uh, parts of these interviews has been hearing about field stories. Apparently, the field is this uh, amazing place where crazy things happen. Uh, do you have any field stories you'd care to share? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure everybody who's in the earth sciences um, and does go out into the field, and that's not everybody. We have plenty of very valuable work that happens um, at a desk behind a computer in a lab. But if you do go into the field, um, Sure, everybody has colorful stories. The The way to think of fieldwork, perhaps, is that you are in a laboratory, but unlike the kind of laboratory where you put on a white coat uh, and you have machinery with knobs and dials, uh, your laboratory is one in which you don't get to control the experiment. All you get to do is measure as much of the experiment as you possibly can. So you're at the mercy of what nature throws at you by way of settings of those dials that you might otherwise uh, have control over. Um, and that's where it becomes colorful. And of course, the scale is unfeasibly large. and You are very small compared with that scale and have to deal with the conditions. Um, I, I mean, field work, if we're honest about it, is 
uh, is full of frustrations that you're compensated for by the fact that you get to do this really interesting stuff somewhere out in a wild place. Um, I used to spend a lot of time drilling holes in glaciers to measure what the water pressure uh, under the uh, glacier is. Um, it's a very time-consuming task. Um, and Is the pressure ever so high that it comes out the top like an oil well? Uh, so we, in our instance, have never had an artesian fountain as such, but we have uh, drilled into some very interesting features. I can give you two examples. One, um, one is that everybody who studies the drainage of water under glaciers would like to find a channel, essentially a river that flows under the, the glacier. Now, you have to imagine that you're in a landscape, but the landscape is covered by something uh, that you can't see through, and you're poking around trying to find uh, where the river is, but you don't even know what the shape of the valley is exactly. Um, and a single poke, a single borehole might take you half a day to drill and you have a relatively short season. So now you can imagine how hard it is to find, um, to find such a river. We did eventually find one. Um, we knew this because the sound in the borehole was very pronounced. You can actually hear this river. The other thing uh, that happens is that uh, this subglacial river is actually at a very low water pressure, which means that the borehole you've just produced and you produce it with a machine that's essentially a pavement washer, you melt a hole by pumping hot water down this borehole. Um, the, the borehole starts off full of water, but as soon as you hit this channel, all the water drains out. Now, to make the borehole, you've just fed a lot of hose and heavy steel rod down this hole. Um, and when all the water drains out, this hose is no longer supported by anything. Uh, so the poor person that's trying to control the descent of the borehole suddenly has a great deal of weight hanging from them. Uh, that's not the most exciting story uh, I realize, but um, I, as science goes, it was exciting to see that after about six years of poking holes into a glacier, we had finally found something. Um, I later graduated to bigger glaciers where drilling is not really uh, a, a sensible proposition if you want to drill a lot of holes. And we started using natural boreholes. So you have to imagine that there are surface streams on glaciers and they flow along, uh, but they rarely ever stay at the surface for that long. As soon as they, they meet a crack, a crevasse in the glacier, the water descends. Um, and because um, it essentially erodes the sides of the hole that's going down, it, it makes quite a sizable shaft. So you're looking at a big waterfall in the middle of a glacier. So of course, being a foolhardy scientist, uh, I decided that this was a cheaper way of getting a borehole um, than to drill one myself. We have naturally drilled boreholes. Uh, and we devised a way of safely lowering instrumentation down one of these natural access holes to the glacier bed. Uh, it's a very frustrating process. They're rarely very straight and cables get tangled somewhere down there, but you can't see what they're doing. But we had a great hole that um, the instrument, the lowering actually went down very nicely. Uh, and we 
secured it. Um, uh, two kinds of anchors, one of which was designed to melt out, the other was permanent. Uh, and we went off and did work elsewhere. We came back a week later, we had beautiful data. We also had a broken cable. What had happened was that one of the anchors was not in line with the other. When the first anchor melted out as it was intended to, the cable jerked sideways uh, and that load itself caused a $5,000 cable to snap. So sort of my, uh, my field work story, it's, it doesn't hold much human interest, but it gives you an idea of... Um, no, again, things go wrong. <laughs> That's life. But the, the real value, I mean, from a personal perspective, the real value of field work beyond the science you're creating is, uh, is the ability to, to be in a place that you have uh, both a, a level of personal connection to as well as a scientific interest in, and to share this uh, with others who uh, hopefully share your interest and enthusiasm. Um, and that's difficult to you know, describe in words. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, a glacial waterfall sounds absolutely gorgeous. And the fact that you got your uh, data out, that that's uh, the main benefit too. Well, it was a week's worth of data. I'd hoped for a month's worth of data. So uh, it wasn't quite. It was it was a brilliant opportunity that was uh, became a learning uh, experience, let's say. Um, glacial waterfalls are really beautiful. They are also quite intimidating. Um, you have to be quite careful working around them. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, figuring ways of safely doing this. Uh, getting advice from people who've done this and much bigger waterfalls in places like Greenland and uh, transferring that knowledge to um, the Canadian North. And how often do you go to the field? I typically go once or twice a year. Um, a typical year would see me going into the field in July for two, three, four weeks and returning for just under a week in September. Um, one of the things that keeps me coming back every year is... Uh, is not just um, the desire to do science, but actually an aspect of maintenance. So uh, along with the flow of the glacier and the accumulation of the snow that was then carried away by, by the glacier, the other part is that the glacier is continuously melting uh, in its lower reaches. And anything you install in the ice will eventually melt out, fall over. And when you are looking at um, expensive electronics you don't want those expensive electronics to be littered around the glacier surface uh, certainly not over the whole winter so we come back in september um simply to secure the equipment and then gather data typically. wonderful and you mentioned um you do this in the canadian arctic whereabouts uh it's actually not in the arctic it's you know you could call it the subarctic it's in the St. Elias Mountains in the Yukon, so the um, very southwestern corner of the Yukon near the uh, Alaska-Yukon-BC border. Um, we had a field camp where you could see uh, one of the summits of Mount Logan um, from what you might otherwise euphemistically call the outhouse. <laughs> now, well, why do you do this research? What's the application of, of your work? I, well, I think the 
answers, if you're honest about it as a scientist, to those two questions are actually different. Um, you do the work because you're interested in it. Um, so I mentioned I got into it because I, you know, like climbing, which really meant that I kind of like mountainous landscapes and the outdoor recreation aside, um, it's really an interest in, in how things that you can see uh, and hear, observe, how they really work. Uh, so that that's what drew me into it. If I'm honest, that's probably still why I do it. It's, it's natural curiosity. Uh, that being said, you know, the, the, the Canadian taxpayer supports this. Um, and I'm not arrogant enough to think that Canadian taxpayers should support this simply because I find it interesting. Um, glaciers and ice sheets play a number of roles and, and, and ones that are obviously changing uh, as the climate does. Um, on a local to regional scale, glaciers uh, function as um, essentially as, as a water reservoir. Uh, and it's it's a water reservoir that smooths out seasonal variations in precipitation. It's not that this is a, a long-term store. It's really that um, if you live in a dry part of the world, um, the glacier, uh, through melting in the summer, provides you a water supply that you might not otherwise have seasonally. So it, it delays the arrival of snow melt, if you like, which would otherwise get discharged very quickly in the, in the spring by having a glacier, you, you smooth this out. So um, a, this is actually relevant in parts of Canada, primarily in Alberta, um, a, including for things like ag agriculture. Um, glaciers also create natural hazards, and, and that's, a, um, a, a, again, regionally an important topic under climate change. Uh, one of the things that I study associated with uh, the drainage of meltwater uh, is how uh, glaciers that have lakes that are dammed by glaciers um, drain. So they, these these kinds of lakes are significant flooding hazards, and in many cases they will regularly drain. Uh, part of my field program in the Yukon targets a, a lake, um, which in itself is not a a, a risk to any inhabited areas, but uh, forms a good test bed for trying to understand how these kinds of hazards behave. Uh, globally, of course, land ice is um, is important because it stores water on land, which would otherwise be in the oceans, and this would lead to sea level rise. Uh, and that, I think, uh, is in the long term, globally speaking, the, the biggest concern in, in glaciology. And I, I want to say about half my work is really focused on um, continental-sized sheets. Um, actually, one of my biggest focuses, uh, my main focus in that regard is really in Antarctica. Um, and, and there the application is, uh, how do we better get a handle on future sea level rise? How can you better predict the magnitude of future sea level rise? Um, which then you know has implications for how you invest in flood defenses and other things that are incredibly costly. I like how you put that. Um, when we talk about glaciers, we do often talk about the global uh, sea level rise component, but we don't talk about the um, more localized um, benefits of having glaciers. Um, I never thought about how, like you said, they act as a way to smooth out dry periods versus wet periods because they're just constantly feeding water into environments like Alberta, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, 
we don't talk about this because it it doesn't affect uh, as much of the human population across the planet as sea level rise does. Um, it, it it's regionally important, and um, areas of South America are another good example of where this is quite relevant. Um, quite often, the the discussion about what's important, what's not, um, is affected by how wealthy the people that are affected are. And I think that's something to bear in mind when we say, oh, we don't hear about this very often. I think what what affects people who are less wealthy, who live in less influential places often isn't as much part of the discussion. And that could be the case here. Uh, if you live in a country that is able to pump water from A to B more easily, um, the topic at hand won't be as important uh, as that's not the case. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we don't hear about COVID in Africa. Um, uh, you mentioned sea level rise. Uh, how high are the seas going to get? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, to which the uh, answer isn't well, very well agreed upon. Uh, the current predictions by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, I want to say, lie somewhere between half a meter and a meter over the next century. Um, and that's uh, the sum total of contributions from Greenland, Antarctica, mountain glaciers, and uh, something called steric expansion, uh, which is also quite hard to get a handle on as you warm ocean waters. Now the question is, how much do you warm the ocean at depth? Um, and how much of the ocean are you actually expanding? Uh, so that, that's sort of the figure you're looking at, and that has significant impacts or implications, um, largely because humans like to live near the ocean, not just because the views are good, but because transport goes across the ocean. Often these are uh, fertile lands and river deltas and such. Um, and again, um, there are less wealthy countries uh, that are heavily exposed to this. Places like um, Bangladesh uh, or um, Cambodia and Vietnam uh, that uh, have low-lying areas uh, of agricultural land that are affected by sea level rise. Um, you mentioned earlier that one of the best parts of your work uh, is just the environment, getting to go out into these um, beautiful landscapes. From a very selfish um, point of view. <laughs> I can empathize with that. It sounds just gorgeous. What would you say is the worst or the most challenging aspect of your work? Uh, like I'm a very privileged person, so I, um, I, I'm hesitant to... Uh, to complain. Uh, one thing about science is that um, it has a very odd way of validating work, um, which is not something that outsiders to science would often run into. You know, we see science being reported on in the newspapers and such, and the vast majority of science uh, does not gain this sort of level of attention. So you have to be quite self-motivated. You, you do something because uh, you really care about the answer and you can't attach too much importance to whether uh, someone else does. Um, so I, I work in a particular, particularly 
obscure subdiscipline in in that I do combine physics and mathematics with glaciology and and this is actually not a particularly mainstream occupation uh, and so you kind of have to be patient quite often you, you do pieces of work that um, that, that you know don't have an immediate audience or not much of an immediate audience uh, and so you do it for the love of discovery uh, you try and point out the relevance but um, but you can't force the stuff on anything that I think is probably the um, the biggest challenge I can totally empathize um, self-promotion always feels icky um, <laughs> until I realize that everyone else is doing it's it not around. just that it's um, uh, it's it's I think the the result of pure self-promotion is actually not very uh, satisfying because if you get attention simply because you said, look at me, um, I don't know if anyone finds that particularly satisfying in the long run. Uh, but it's it's a sense of, um, you know, are you firing your work off into a void or is there actually, is there uh, a a receptive community to whom this makes a difference. And that's not saying that there should be one. I mean, it's incumbent on you to, to figure out what's the relevance, but, but every now and again, you just feel that there's something that it grabs you. You really want to know how this works, but it isn't, maybe it isn't fashionable right now. And then you might think of science as being objective, but actually it is subject to all the other uh, human foibles that we know about. Uh, and so you can end up doing stuff that, you know, perhaps becomes uh, of interest much later. And then there, I mean, the history of science is littered with this kind of stuff, large and small. And so um, you just have to be self-motivated um, and not worry too much about immediate feedback as to whether your stuff is still relevant or not. That's good advice. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier that you come from a place of privilege. I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any um, underrepresented communities? Um, or do you have any perspectives on, on their role in science? I think I, I can safely say that I am not from an underrepresented community. I, I come from um, a Western European background, um, you know, from... Uh, economically perfectly comfortable background. Uh, I'm male, which back then probably still played a pretty significant role in how children were encouraged to pursue their education. Um, so from that perspective, I, I cannot speak to the undoubted challenges that underrepresented communities uh, experience. I, if I look at our field, the earth sciences writ large, it is certainly true that we are um, not very diverse at present, um, uh, certainly compared with other science disciplines. And then because uh, because my background straddles multiple disciplines, I have a bit of an insight into the people that you run into, uh, into how other scientific communities fare with this. Um, my impression, and I, I think I'm not alone in this, is that uh, the earth sciences um, 
not by design, but but simply by by history, it's sort of a little bit self-selected. People go into the earth sciences because, well, they self-identify with those outdoor recreation interests that I described as being in my own background. And historically, if you look into into those, they are dominated you know, by the, I want to say the rugged white male, but not just that, increasingly also the rugged white male that is financially sufficiently secure to invest in the quite often expensive equipment um, that this requires. And so um, I think that's a focus that really needs to shift. I think in recruiting, we should um, probably um, discount a little bit the value of prior experience in in the mountains or in, in whatever outdoor environment that you're going into. They, those sorts of skills are all learnable. Um, to do science in wild places doesn't mean that you have to be making first ascents of technically difficult terrain by and large. Um, if, you know, if, if you're if you have uh, common sense and then are willing to learn, people from all, all backgrounds can can get into uh, uh, into the earth sciences, including um, uh, field science, very much. Um, and I think uh, we we don't do a good enough job of trying to recruit more widely based on based on other um, skill sets that people could bring to the table uh, conversely um because of the the way that um, the earth sciences perceived i suspect um uh, some of the kind of people we should be attracting more of um don't even look in our direction. So there's, this will undoubtedly take time, but I think there's a there's certainly a, a cultural and perceptional issue there. I'll certainly attest to that. When I uh, first started at this department, I thought it would all be um, people of a, a certain skin tone and uh, majority men, but um, I've been pleasantly surprised that the stereotype doesn't hold up quite as, as strictly as I thought it would. I expect there's a generational change that's coming our way. Uh, and I think the same is true if you look at, you know, recreational outdoor pursuits, they are no longer as uh, uh, a, as white and male. If you go to your local indoor climbing wall, um, you will find that that is certainly true. Um, but, but I think um, academia moves relatively slowly because professors are typically hired probably in their 30s and they hang around until they're in their 60s or perhaps 70s. So that's quite a long turnover timescale. And um, what's important then, I think, is, um, is encouraging the, the pipeline of diverse talent um, not to drop out. Uh, and that's really what we need to work on. Now, looking spe- specifically at, at glaciology, uh, do you feel that it's a warm and, and welcoming field, or is it a little more uh, insular and... Um... I don't want to say well, frigid, it, but... <laughs> it lends itself to all kinds of problems with glaciology being a, uh, a warm environment. Um, I think so. Um, I mean, there is certainly a, um, a little bit of the... A, a bit of a culture of uh, field, I don't want to call it machismo, but I think you know what I'm trying to say, um, that can come through, but I think by and large, uh, certainly in my local environment, it's, uh, it is very welcoming um, and, and, and welcoming of diversity, even if now and again, there are you know, moments where you think we could do this better. 
Now, um, one thing that we've all had to deal with, uh, whether diverse or not, is uh, COVID. So that kind of, well, that's walled the world for the past two years. Um, did it wallop you? Were you able to keep working? Well, I mean, I personally, it's much the same challenges I think everybody else. Um, I, on average, probably describe myself as something of an introvert. It was actually wonderful at the start because everything switched off and so the distractions that um, are usually hard to deal with um, went away for quite a while. I, I felt I was quite productive in that I could actually string a couple of thoughts together. Um, it does have you know, all kinds of impacts that are, um, we have a young child at home and, and of course the, I think anyone who's got children um, finds it challenging at the moment to, uh, to balance uh, the different demands. Uh, again, you know, the, the kind of privileged life I live and that makes this, this easier and for others. And I'm thinking of grad students here, for instance, for whom uh, trying to balance um, childcare needs and close daycares and, and so forth with uh, having to make progress on a timeline that is much more prescribed than for me as a professor. Uh, that's a big challenge. Um, isolation is a big challenge. You know, we have research groups that you know, quite often the students are quite social, but that is actually a big part of their mental health and it may not go acknowledged during normal times. Uh, but when you don't have that, um, it's, you know, like I said earlier, it's, it's challenging enough sometimes to convince yourself that your work is of value, even though it doesn't immediately become acclaimed for any reason. Um, but now if you're really just doing this in front of a computer screen, I think that can be quite challenging. Um, that COVID has also impacted field work. I've had two field seasons in which I literally went into the field in order to secure equipment that was already out there and knowing new science was done. Um, again, as a professor, that the impact of that is um, is limited, and luckily, I didn't have any grad students that relied on progress with this particular material. They're currently more long-term research projects. So I've I, I've come through COVID quite well, um, but I won't say that it was all easy, and um, and certainly, um, I think. It, certainly mental health issues that would affect most people in a time like this. You mentioned that you're an introvert. I can imagine being on a glacier, even if you're with a small group, uh, would be very, not lonely, but um, being very free, freeing to be alone, um, even with a small group in this very isolated environment. Yeah, I mean, you don't, so when I say introvert, I don't necessarily mean that I'm, uh, I am, not inclined to be sociable, or you don't want to talk to people. It's more of a, a pace of stimulation uh, issue. I, I get overloaded. I mean, opening my inbox daily is a, is a chore um, uh, because there are so many tasks you're suddenly expected to do that you don't have um, scope to figure out how all this fits together with sometimes actually having to be able to spend time thinking about a, a, a more difficult research problem or other problem, even if it's advising a student on something, um, that you can't just come up uh, with an answer for within five minutes or 10 minutes. Uh, and so that's that's what I meant by, by introvert. Uh, now, of course, yes, glaciers are 
this is a really great places for that. Um, they're certainly not devoid of stimulation, but the, uh, the pace of that stimulation is one that you do get to control quite well. I, I, so in that sense, certainly field work has suited me quite a lot. Um, I will say that um, if you do field work at a somewhat larger scale with um, a slightly larger group of people uh, for whom you're responsible, that can be quite stressful. I, uh, I had one field season where uh, we were in the field for nearly six weeks with a group of about six to seven people, uh, sometimes spread out over terrain. Uh, and uh, as the professor in charge, you're also responsible for safety and such. And uh, um, depending on um, the individuals involved, that can be that can be one of the more challenging things. You asked me earlier about challenges. Uh, so sometimes field work can be stressful, um, but uh, it, it's also immensely rewarding and suits my personality quite a lot. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> now, if um, someone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps and become a glaciologist, uh, what background or experience or courses would you recommend they uh, pursue? Well, I said earlier, I'm maybe not representative of the mainstream, um, but I would say that probably a, a good grounding in quantitative science is, uh, is what you really want to look for. The, the specifics of ice, something that, like the specifics of many things, uh, you can learn in grad school, um, but you know, the foundations of physics and, and applicable mathematics and, and some statistics are something that, that are much harder to, uh, to acquire um, quickly in grad school. So that, uh, and I am biased, of course, because that's, um, that's the way I came into this, but I would, I would suggest that that's a, a good pathway into glaciology and, and not just my flavor of glaciology, but, um, uh, but a lot of it, um, and if you if you're interested in the fieldwork aspect of it, then uh, familiarity with um, instrumentation, um, basic electronics, how measurements are made, that that becomes uh, quite an important aspect of it. Uh, and then beyond that, um, probably the biggest determinant and success in research is actually patience and perseverance um, rather than any kind of intellectual brilliance that you might imagine. Um, it, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, there, there'll be challenges that just take time. And some people just, yeah, they do great work, they're just not super fast and, and we don't recognize that as being brilliance, but they, they, so I would say, um, yes, solid grounding in, in quantitative science. Uh, and an understanding that research is, uh, is challenging but rewarding work that requires patience and perseverance. Those, those are the main things I'd say that you're looking at. Um, are those the qualities look, you look for when you're selecting grad students? Yes. Um, I mean, for specific projects, I would look a little more in detail at uh, what kinds of skills uh, you're bringing. I've had students with backgrounds in, in engineering and math and physics and geophysics. Um, I, 
like I said, I'm, every individual professor will bring particular um, biases to this. And, and my work's relatively diverse because it involves both theory and field work. And when I say theory, it involves computation as well. So I, I, I have needs that change from project to project. And how many grad students do you currently have? I have three, and that's a pretty good group size for me. I, um, I like to be quite involved, and some of the, the work uh, is, a lot of the work is, is relatively specific. It's more of a one-off thing. It's not that I can have a lab with a standard setup where um, there's a manual that a student needs to understand to run a, a piece of analytical equipment, uh, and then you, know, you structure a project around making measurements, it's, uh, it, it requires a little bit more individual attention uh, for the kind of work that I do. And so I it can't really have a very, very large research group. It's a more artisanal approach to science than in industrial. If you, like. if you like, that might sound a little pretentious, especially living in this part of the world. Maybe that's where I picked up the lingo from. <laughs> probably, probably at the local coffee shop. Now you've been uh, really inspiring today. Uh, I'm curious, who inspired you when you were going through your studies and early career? Um, a variety of people. Um, there's a math teacher in approximately grade six uh, who um, was very inspiring. I had no idea I'd end up here now. Um, there was a chemistry teacher in high school who, you know, I actually, out of all the sciences I was taking at the time, chemistry, was the one that I was least likely to stick with, but the teacher was um, had a really good take on what science actually is. Um, uh, probably the friend that got me interested in in glaciology. Yes, we met while climbing, but certainly that wasn't the only thing that uh, uh, we had to talk about. Uh, my PhD supervisor and various people that have you know influenced and helped my career since then. It, um, you know, science likes to present itself as, you know, the, the singular brilliant genius that comes along. And actually, it, it really isn't like that. Even those people who win awards and, uh, uh, you know, whose names end up being attached to certain discoveries, they tend to have had a great deal of help and been inspired and been given ideas, whether wittingly or not, by others. And, and there are too many of those for me to mention, even though I'm not in the category of highly decorated scientist, uh, even at my lowly level, um, it would be impossible to say, but a, a string of people throughout my life. That's a, a really good way of looking at it and explaining science too, because all too often we get the one or two celebrated scientists and it's like they've created a whole field um, and pulled it out of their head. But like you said, um, just like with a the glacier, there's so much going on below that people just don't see. Yeah, and I mean, it, 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 sometimes, you know, puzzle pieces simply fall in place at a certain point in time, um, and somebody's name may end up being attached to this, and and, and, and that's fine. Um, I, I'm always a little hesitant, and this spills over into my teaching, about the way that, that science wants to, you know, celebrate its history by listing those individuals. And if you go back to the diversity issue, right, those individuals overwhelmingly turn out to be 
white males, and, and that's fine. I don't want to take away from their individual achievements, but it doesn't necessarily set the right kind of tone because what it says is that in order to be validated, you have to be in that kind of category. And, and, and the truth is that science progresses through failure. We all try stuff and some of us strike it lucky and most of us don't most of the time, but that's fine. It's not that the person who strikes it lucky got there through genius. It's it's a collective enterprise and somebody somebody will stumble onto the right into the right answer, but but that makes all the failures still worthwhile. Wonderful. Failure is fundamental. <laughs> this is all built on. So long as we're honest about it. You actually have to say this didn't work. Right. This theory doesn't describe the data that isn't in agreement with the data. And if you're honest about that, well, that's great because then you stop others from pursuing things that don't work. Um, science doesn't reward this. Rarely are we encouraged to publish papers that say this. But I'm happy to say that I've published a couple along exactly those lines. Uh, and I'm very happy about that. I've tried to normalize failure a bit too, but... <laughs> um... Now, looking to the long term, I mean, you're at about mid-career, right? Yeah, that's probably about right. You should never take anything for granted. Uh, look to the long term, and what would you like to be the legacy when you retire? <sighs> legacy is a loaded word, right? Um, I mean, I'd like to think, I'd like what I'd like to do is for the pieces of work that I do to be of, of a high quality. Perhaps that goes back to the slightly pretentious artisanal work approach um, uh, but I, um, I'd like to make progress in some fairly basic fundamental things even accepting that maybe they're the fundamentals of something that doesn't matter very much at least that seems to be the way I'm, I'm working right now I, I'm interested in how does stuff work if I, if I have a question about, um, let's say, a theory or an idea of how something in the glacial world works, and there's something that doesn't seem quite consistent to me, I, uh, I will start to turn this over in my head, even if it's not necessarily a subject that anyone else is particularly excited about right now. Uh, and quite often, I won't let go until I have satisfied myself that I have a better understanding. Um, and I'm happy with that as a, as a way of approaching the science. Yes, of course, it would be nice to think that um, you know, some of this affects uh, the bigger picture and, and, and some of the work I've done has inspired changes in the way that we model ice sheets numerically. So some of the predictions of sea level rise, actually quite a lot of them come out of simulations of big ice sheets. Some of the work I've done has been incorporated into that, and, and that, that, that's great. Um, and of course, that, that forms sort of the, the bigger backdrop of why I do this, why I would go after the physics of ice sheets. But um, uh, you know, whether somebody else picks up a piece of work that you've done or not, that's, there are lots of intangibles in there. So I don't want to see that as my primary legacy. Um, but legacy, in any case, is a it's a loaded word because what it sort of suggests is that we're here so that we're still remembered once we're no longer here. We somehow set a monument to ourselves. And, and really what we should be doing is trying to contribute to the, the body of knowledge that's out there. Um, 
and our name shouldn't matter that much. Unfortunately, of course, we all need to, you know, make money to, you know, buy bread and pay the rent or buy a house, God forbid. Uh, and this unfortunately means that the reward system that exists in academia becomes relevant and it's not a particularly healthy one. That's it. So that's where a lot of the wanting to attach names to stuff comes from. If that's what a legacy is, I, I don't really want to think about it that way. Um, now, for what it's worth, I think glaciers are terribly interesting. And I think a lot of people, I think you undersell uh, how how fascinating they can be. <laughs> And I don't, I, I don't mean that at all. Um, it's not that glaciers aren't fascinating. It's that my particular take on glaciers might be a little too eclectic. Uh, I, I think glaciers are fascinating places um, that, you know, they're, they're not the easiest to go and explore uh, for most people because it requires a certain set of skills if you want to do it safely and and equipment and such, and, 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 and you know, that, that makes it um, inaccessible um, to lots of people. But, but that being said, yes, glaciers are fascinating places. And um, uh, I think underneath it all really is, uh, the message underneath it isn't really about glaciers, it's about um, the natural world being a fascinating place. And that gets lost in our society quite a bit because we shrink we shrink our interests quite often to, you know, two by four inch telephone screen. Um, and that's a little bit sad, maybe. Absolutely. That's a good, good take, a good approach. Now, my final question, um, and it kind of actually relates to that. Um, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career is often uh, completely changed by the time that they do retire. Uh, that two-inch screen that you mentioned um, is a reference that people wouldn't have gotten 10, 15 years ago. Um, where do you see glaciology going in the future? And what changes do you see coming to the field? And uh, what advice would you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes and get ahead of the curve? Well, the first thing is that there's a great deal more interest in glaciology and it's grown as a field of science. And it really used to be a bunch of people who you know, they weren't quite at the level of being professional mountaineers, but that was sort of where they came from. You know, as a colleague once described to me, they have crampons dangling out of their pockets. And that really isn't the case anymore. There's a lot of people that go into glaciology that have a very genuine interest in, in the societal impact of this. They do think we need better sea level projections. As a result, it's become less fieldwork centric. It's become a lot more quantitative. Um, there's a lot more data nowadays that didn't used to exist, uh, and that's certainly making itself felt. The same as in any other field of science, you will see a lot of focus on machine learning um, cropping up. That's that's very much in flux. How do you best, you know, exploit the large amounts of data and the evolving techniques to deal with them that exist out there? And I certainly don't think the dust has settled on that. Um, you know. Glaciology, along with a lot of earth sciences, finds itself in an interesting place in that we, we have a lot of very detailed data in space. Quite often we have very short time series, as you'd call them. We, these detailed observations don't go back very far. And in, in glaciology, as in many other earth sciences fields, the, the natural timescales over which 
something evolves is quite long. So if I go to Antarctica and I ask how long does it take for a snowflake that falls in the middle of the continent to reach the coast? Well, you know, you're looking at thousands of years. Um, and so our time series, our highly resolved data is, uh, for some of this is in the, which you might call the noise level. Um, you're seeing, yes, some processes that are clearly um, not just something jumping around, but a, a definite trend. But to really understand how something like this works based on data alone, you need a lot more data. Uh, and by the time you have that data, if you like, it's too late. The thing that you're trying to understand has already happened. The same is undoubtedly true in lots of other fields of science. Uh, you know, ocean currents are relatively slow. It takes a long time for the ocean to turn over, if you like. Um, and so how do we handle that? There is still a place for understanding physical process, you know, what pushes what in what direction and why, um, uh, alongside um, you know, simply using modern data analysis, which often doesn't try to impose that level of physical understanding uh, in, in, in its approach to the data. So there, there's, uh, those are issues that are uh, going to be front and center. Um, and, and, and that's part of the reason why I said a, a quantitative background is probably your best bet for um, uh, if you wanted to go into this area of science, as with pretty much any area of science nowadays, you need the, the field-specific knowledge to make sense of what you're seeing, to not start doing something that is implausible as a, as a starting point for your science. But, but there are um, skill sets that are fairly transferable. And those are worth trying to develop. Great. Know the basics and learn how to process the data. <laughs> you mentioned that you've got a big influx of fresh blood into the field and renewed interest. Um, I found talking to people from other fields that they uh, got lured into their field through movies at, as a young child. Paleontologists often cite Jurassic Park, uh, meteorologists cite Twister. Do you find that glaciologists are getting into the field because of Ice Age? Ah, well, that's a good question. That may not be quite the right time scale yet. Um, I think kids that would, well, Maybe maybe kids that watched Ice Age when they were young are starting to appear in grad school. I, um, you know, if you'd said the day after tomorrow or um, uh, you know, chasing ice, I, I think more to the point actually with glaciology, it, it's just simply the news. Um, there is so much climate change uh, material in in the news now that that's um, uh, that's what's driving a lot of our students interest in this and they, they see it as, as an important part of what's going on around them and certainly the uh, you know awareness and concern over climate change is something that's it's grown very significantly in the last 10 years alone i want to say as an instructor uh, from what our undergraduates want to learn about well christian thanks for sharing uh, your passion and your knowledge um is there anything i missed or anything you want to add before i let you go don't think so. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm a professor. You can, despite the fact that I described myself as an introvert, you can probably get me to talk for, for hours about uh, what I do. But um, you know, um, those conversations become uh, quickly become too specific. Uh, um, so I think you've covered it very well.
Well, you're very passionate about ice. Thanks for sharing it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.